Amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter 8. I believe Paul was the author of the book of Hebrews. It's certainly his gospel. And the Bible tells us that the Galatian churches were being hindered by the Jews that came from Jerusalem after Paul had established the churches. And there was a great miracle that took place in the establishment of the, the Galatian churches, the area that was known as Galatia, the region of Galatia. It tells us that Paul was stoned and left for dead after he had preached and shared Jesus. But God raised him up and he went back to some of the places that he had been before, places that had heard that he'd been stoned and left for dead. I believe he was dead. The people that came from the cities for the purpose of stoning him wouldn't have just left the job half done and thought otherwise. And these churches in Galatia experienced the doctrine of the Jews. That doctrine was that it's okay to believe in Jesus, but you still have to keep the laws of Moses. And so Paul writes the book of Hebrews, and he identifies the excellence of the new covenant over the old covenant. So we'll start in verse 1 of Hebrews 8. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. He's going to gather everything together and summarize what he's talked to him about. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on the earth, he, could, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve under the example and shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for, for see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he said, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they will be unto me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor 
and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. In that, he saith, a new covenant hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxes old is ready to vanish away. God identifies and is revealed to us through Paul's revelation that the first covenant, the Mosaic covenant, had a fault. And that fault was that people didn't walk in it. There wasn't anything wrong with the law that was given, but man was unable to keep it. And God takes it upon himself rather than finding fault or punishing the people for their faults. He recognizes and he wants us to recognize that the nature of his family is the determining factor for the new covenant blessings that the Bible identifies as the blessing of Abraham. The fault of the first covenant, the Mosaic covenant, is that man could not be made righteous by the keeping of the law. Folks, there are two ways that the word sin is used in the Bible. There are individual sins, transgressions that all of us make or participate in. But there's another way that sin is referred to in the scripture, and that is sin in the aggregate, the totality of all of mankind's sin. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 53, verse 5, that Jesus was wounded for our transgressions and he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. The difference between transgressions and iniquities is personal sin. Jesus died for your sins, your individual sins and mine. And if that was all he died for, if that was all he was the substitute for mankind to achieve, then we would stand in a position where our individual sins were paid for, but because our nature had not changed, we would continue and go on sinning just like we did before. So the price for all of mankind's sins would have to be paid in order for man to become righteous. Now beginning in verse 10, I want to read this again and make some comments on it. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God and they shall be unto me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall, be, all shall know me from the least to the greatest, 
Notice what he says the new covenant will do. The new covenant will enable us to renew our minds to the truth of the word. He will write his laws in our heart. The law of the new covenant is one single law. Jesus tells us in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, that the law of the new covenant is simply the law of love. He goes on to say that if we operate in the law of love, then we will not be breaking any of the Ten Commandments, which generally refers to the law of Moses in its entirety. If we're walking in love with someone, then we're not going to steal from them. If we're walking in love, then we're not going to bear false witness or lie. But it all depends on the change of nature. The Bible tells us in Numbers, I believe it's chapter 21, that the people murmured against Moses, and as a result, the protection of God's hand was lifted from them, and poisonous snakes, fiery serpents, as the King James speaks of, fiery serpents entered into the camp and bit a lot of the people, and the people died from the poisonous venom of the snakes. So Moses went to God. The people recognized their, their sin. They came to Moses and said, we have sinned because we spoke against God and against you. Now folks, stop and think about that for a minute. They knew what sin was. They knew the sin that they committed. So why wouldn't they have thought about this ahead of time and avoided committing the sin? Well, at any rate... Moses goes to the Lord and he seeks what to do to deliver the people from these fiery serpents. And the Lord instructs Moses to make a brass serpent and put it on a pole. And he tells them, whosoever shall look upon the brass serpent on the pole shall live, but whoso looketh not shall die. Now, Jesus tells us in John chapter 3 that if the Son of Man be lifted up like Moses lifted up the brass serpent in the wilderness, then that person should be saved and not die. So Jesus is identifying himself with the brass serpent on the pole. Now, the way most people think of Jesus in his sacrificial offering of his life and his body, most people see Jesus as the Lamb of God. Yet the Bible tells us that Jesus identified with the brass serpent. We know that the serpent is the symbol of Satan. And so Jesus is identifying with the illustration of Satan on the pole. Now, why is that? Well, there's only one conclusion that we can draw, and that is Jesus knew that he would be made sin on the cross. Now, here we are at Easter, 
Resurrection Day. And most of the church worldwide is going to rejoice, and rightly so, because Jesus was raised from the dead. But very few of the modern church seems to understand what Jesus really did on the the cross, the price that he paid, and the penalty that must be satisfied, that he did satisfy. But Jesus identifies with man's sin nature. See, the reason that man sins is not because he wants to. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 7 the dilemma that he found himself in when he was trying to control his body, but he concluded that the things that he wanted his body to do weren't always done, and the things that he didn't want his body to do were often done. I appreciate the fact that Paul relates to us on a personal level in a way that we can identify with him. And Paul concludes by saying that he's not able, he has no power in and of himself to stop sinning. What delivers him from this dilemma? He identifies it as the power of God. And that power of God does not condemn him for his wrongdoing. Folks, the devil wants you to think you are what you do. The devil wants you knowing that because of the experience that we have in our flesh with sin... He knows that behavior is somewhat of a hit and miss proposition for the Christian. But the Bible teaches that we have been made righteous. Paul identifies it here as being made people of the word whose minds have the law of God, the love of God written in them, whose hearts are made new by the love of God. The last thing the devil wants you to do is understand or come to the understanding that Paul had and that he teaches us that understanding is that our sin nature has changed. Our very nature has changed. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature or a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things become new. Let me read to you the context of this salvation experience. Paul writes, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. My favorite translation of this is a new creation or a new species of being. 
God made a new species of being when Jesus paid the price for us on the cross and was our substitute. He made a new species of being, something that had never existed before. Well, what is that something that never existed before? He made man righteous regardless of his actions. He changed man's nature. Everything Jesus did was as a substitute. Everything that he did culminated in his substitutionary work for you and me. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new species of being. Old things are passed away. The old nature passed away. Therefore, all things become new. The new nature, the nature of righteousness, which was imparted to us by our obedience to the word in accepting Jesus as our Savior. See, folks, Jesus didn't just save us from hell. Most people seem to have the idea that salvation just means delivered from hell. But salvation is, is, has more to do with your nature than anything else. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new species of being. Old things are passed away. That means none of the old things that you did count anymore. Behold, all things become new. And all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. This word reconciliation and reconcile, it's used five or six times in the next few verses. It means an exchange. It means an exchange. In other words, it's part of Jesus' substitutionary work. He traded or exchanged his righteous nature, his sinless nature. He exchanged that for our unrighteousness. I should have pointed it out when we were looking at Romans chapter 8. But there's a part of one of those verses that says he became merciful to our unrighteousness. He became merciful to un our unrighteousness. That means he didn't let our unrighteous nature keep him from offering the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross to make a divine exchange. Here where it says we're reconciled unto God by the work of Jesus, it simply means that Jesus made the exchange for us. His substitutionary work on the cross, him going to the cross and dying and taking the sin nature upon himself, man's sin nature upon himself. That's the gospel. That's the good news. The good news is we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Folks, whatever you do, whatever you've done, whatever sins you've committed, it doesn't change your righteous nature with God.
All things are of God who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To it that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Notice that phrase, reconciling the world unto himself. This is the same word exchange that was used previously in the previous verse. God made the exchange for you. He was reconciled through Christ. He reconciled the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he, God, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Notice it says he made Jesus to be sin. He's talking about the sin nature. He didn't make Jesus to be a sinner. He made the sin nature of mankind to be upon Jesus himself. Now, it seems to me that most of the church world has this idea that God laid on Jesus our sins. The idea that Jesus is the Son of God, because Jesus is the Son of God, it would be near blasphemous to say that Jesus took upon man, uh, took upon himself man's sin nature. If man took upon himself, if Jesus took upon himself man's sin nature, then Jesus had to die spiritually. Well, could that be why Jesus is so in anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane? Just a matter of hours before he was taken captive? Could Jesus have been recoiling from dying spiritually, being separated from God? And that's what spiritual death really means. It means being separated from God. Jesus sweats great drops of blood and he prays three times, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Well, it was possible. It was possible for Jesus to avoid being made sin. But he continues that prayer. Thank God he did. If he had just finished it with the possibility aspect, then we never could have been part of God's family and saved by the blood of Christ. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. He's submitting himself, putting himself in God's hand, knowing full well that he's going to be made sin. Knowing full well he's going to, be die, he's going to die spiritually. Knowing full well he's going to be separated from God. Now he knows God's plan of redemption means that it's just going to be a three-day period of time. But three days 
under the shattering waves of God's judgment upon him. Now, folks, just because Jesus submitted himself to God and the punishment for mankind, God can't cut any corners here. He can't give Satan any possible place, not even the slightest place, to accuse God of going easy on his son to achieve his purposes of redemption. Psalm 88 tells us a little bit about the type of Jesus paying the price for sin, the sin of mankind, through Jonah's rebellion. Jonah talks about certain things that are taking place and happening to him when he's in the belly of the fish that don't really make sense. But when you realize that the things that he's talking about pertain to Jesus in his substitutionary work on the cross, then it comes into full view. It talks about how Jesus is separated, isolated. The phrase, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That takes place. Jesus says that. One of the last things he says on the cross. And in Psalm 88 tells us what being separated from God is like as Jesus pays the price for you and me. It talks about wave after wave after wave after wave after wave of God's judgment falling upon him. It talks about the hopelessness because he's isolated. The horrors that Jesus bears upon himself are hard for us to even imagine. And even as we read these scriptures, very little of it finds a home of understanding. So God made Jesus to be sin. Jesus took upon himself the sin nature of mankind. So back to my original thought. If God just laid upon Jesus the sins of, of mankind, then that would have to mean that righteousness is just laid upon us. Like you'd put a coat, coat or a cloak upon your shoulders. Not the real you, but just something that looks like you. Folks, that makes a mockery of the price that Jesus paid. If Jesus was truly made to be sin for us, which the Bible says that he was, 
And if that scripture is not true, then we have no basis for salvation in any form whatsoever. God made Jesus to be sin for us. He made him. It means a change of nature. Jesus exchanged our sin nature for his righteousness. The Bible says that Jesus endured the shame of the cross for one reason, and that was for the joy that was set before him. The last verse of Romans, I think it's verse 25, says that the moment in time came when the price for sin, the sin of mankind, was completed. And when that moment occurred, God didn't prolong it. He didn't allow any further time to go by. Jesus was instantly justified for our sakes. In other words, just as the Bible says, Jesus was the firstborn from the dead. It's hard for us to imagine this, but the simple truth is, because Jesus was made sin for us, his nature was changed to the very same nature of the devil. But the Bible says when the price was finished, Jesus was raised from the dead. That's not physical death yet. The Bible tells us that Jesus went to Abraham's bosom and preached to the saints who were held captive. He took them with him toward heaven. And then Jesus stopped on the earth to get his body. You remember the story of how Mary, the mother of Jesus and Mary Magdalene, went together to finish the burial process for Jesus' body. Prior to that point in time, Jesus had been wound or mummified in the manner that the Jews had learned from the Egyptians. But the face cloth was left until the third day. And that's what they were going to complete. And when they got there, they found that his body was gone. The mummified remains, or the similitude of the mummy, was still there, but his body wasn't inside it. So they began to weep, and then Jesus appeared. And when Mary saw who it was, Jesus told her, don't touch me, for I have not yet been to my father. 
the pattern of the Old Testament rituals indicate that Jesus went into the heavenly holy of holies and offered his blood as an eternal sacrifice for mankind. Now once that had occurred, once he had presented himself to God in the heavenly holy of holies, then Jesus came back to the earth and he appeared to his disciples. And he told them, handle me. See for yourself that I'm not a spirit. Now something has happened. Something has taken place to differentiate between when he told Mary just earlier that same day not to touch him. Then he tells his disciples who are behind closed doors for fear of the Jews. They're afraid that the Jews who put Jesus to death would come after them and to wipe out his remaining disciples on the earth. So Jesus tells them to handle him. And when they do, they recognize that it was him. Jesus then says to him, this is in John chapter 20, Jesus then says to his disciples, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. Now some people think that the church began on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Ghost fell. But if that was the case, then why did Jesus tell his disciples to receive the Spirit? Receive the Holy Spirit. We see that it changed them. It created a change in them. Luke chapter 24, the last few verses of the chapter, tells us that they were in Jerusalem from that point in time. They were in, the Jeru in Jerusalem openly in the temple. They're not huddled up and hiding behind closed doors anymore. And that they returned with great joy. So there was a change in them. Now joy is one of the fruit of the Spirit. One of the characteristics of the believer once he comes into the family of God. So we see a change take place in them before Acts chapter 2 ever occurs. They were born again. When Jesus says, receive you the Holy Spirit, he imparted salvation to them. And then he commissions them to do the same thing for others. He says, whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted. Whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. Now that doesn't mean that mankind has the opportunity or the ability to decide who gets saved and who doesn't. That might be an interesting proposition. But it simply means that because Jesus has opened the door to salvation... That we have the right 
to tell those that choose to accept Jesus that their sins are remitted, old things have passed away, but to also say to those who reject him that their sins are retained. See, folks, somebody has to pay the price for sin. Somebody has to pay the price for your sin. And somebody has to pay the price for universal sin. We might even call it the original sin of Adam. Jesus paid that price for you. And so if you accept what he did for you, then the price is paid concerning you. But if you refuse to accept what Jesus has done for us, then you'll have to pay the price for your own sin. And the price for that sin is an eternal existence in hell. Righteousness is a legal position. It's not an earned position. It's a legal standing. God made Jesus to be sin for us. To take our sin nature upon himself. So that we might be made. A change in nature for us. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. If we look back in the Old Testament, for example, we look at the life of Adam. Adam was in a perfect environment. He lived a life in God's perfection here on the earth. But he chose to give that up. And the Bible tells us that Adam lived 930 years on the earth. It took 930 years to overcome the life of God that he was created in. We don't know anything more about Adam other than he fell. Other than he betrayed God by using his authority on the earth to turn things to a great degree over to the devil. A life of 930 years, and the only thing we really know about him is that he failed. But then God made a covenant with Abraham. The Bible tells us about Abraham and the life that he lived, the covenant blessings that he enjoyed, the victories that he won. But more than anything else, it tells us that Abraham believed God and it was imputed or counted to him for righteousness. Paul quotes that in Romans chapter 4. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. He quoted it again 
in Galatians chapter 3, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. And in James chapter 2, James quotes it as well. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Abraham's one purpose on the earth was to believe God. And because he did believe God, it was counted to him for righteousness. It doesn't mean that he was made righteous. He couldn't be made righteous any more than anybody else could until Jesus paid the price. There's an Old Testament story of Esther who has been brought into the king's favor and made one of his wives and she through her uncle had been made aware of an attack against the Jewish people somebody in the king's court that wanted to wipe out the people of Israel And Esther comes to realize that everything in her life has brought her to this place. As the Bible says, for such a time as this. The Bible tells us also that Jesus will avenge his own. But Jesus says about that avenging, when the Son of Man comes, shall he find faith on the earth. Folks, I believe that we are living in the last of the last days. And our one purpose for these last times is to be a people that believes God. A people that believe God for the purpose of bringing people into the kingdom of God. But a people that believe God who stand up and take their place of authority. And operate in the power of the name of Jesus. These communion elements, the bread and the juice that we use, Jesus says, as often as we drink this cup, eat this bread and drink this cup, we do show the Lord's death till he comes. Folks, he's coming again. I believe he's coming soon. And I believe it's more important now than it ever has been that we be not only believers, but by continuing in the word, we, be, we continue to be 
disciples. Gentlemen, if you'll come forward, we'll wait upon the people. Jesus Christ, no shadow remains of shame to hide. Redemption shown for all to see, perfection bore our penalty with a grace so glorious. Immortal day.
wondrous day when I will see the face of him who ransomed me. I'll fall and worship at his feet and rise to reign eternally in a grace so glorious. Crowned in glory to glory, worthy is the Lord of all the glory forever. Holy is the Lord. Crowned in glory to glory, worthy is the Lord of all the glory forever. Holy is the Lord. Paul writes to the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Folks, the Bible tells us that we should remember that this bread, which represents the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, took stripes upon himself as a part of the penalty for spiritual death. This represents the healing work of, of God through Jesus in God's great plan of redemption. When we take this bread, we are receiving unto ourselves the penalty for sickness and disease that we might walk in divine health. Father, we thank you that we were healed by the stripes of Jesus. And as we take this bread unto ourselves, we take healing unto ourselves as well. We thank you, Father, that you raise up the sick, that you heal all those with diseases in the precious and holy name of Jesus Christ. Let's receive the bread. After the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. That's his death on the cross. This cup, this juice, represents the righteousness that Jesus exchanged for us by allowing himself to be made sin. Father, we thank you that we have been made righteous by the perfect substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Open our eyes to see, Father, 
who we have been made and not just what we do. Let's receive the cup. Let's all stand together. Let's just lift our hands and thank God for his goodness. Father, we know that Jesus is coming soon. And we know who we've been made. That our righteousness is of you. And because we have been made righteous, we can certainly do the works of Jesus. And accomplish your plan and purpose for our lives. Lord Jesus, we believe. We believe you died for us. We believe you paid the ultimate price for us. We believe we've been made righteous. Direct our steps, Father. Lead us in every way possible. In Jesus' name, and everybody that agrees with that, say amen. 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 God bless you, folks. Have a great Easter. <laughs>